0: Did you know that the human eye can differentiate about 10 million different colors and that you blink over 4 million times a year? If you've ever been for an eye test, you'll know the experience of having different lenses put in front of your eye and either things becoming more blurry or clearer. Our vision, both physically and metaphorically, shapes the way we see the world. I'm sure you've had the experience in the last year while either in person or while scrolling through social media where you've thought, how on earth do people think like that? The reality is that the way we engage with the world around us is shaped by numerous things: our own experience and biases, our education and exposure, culture, friends and family, political environment, the list is endless. These ways of seeing the world, the lens we see it through, will shape our belief systems and the way we act. Hello and welcome. I'm Kinzi Katebe, guest host for this episode of the Just for a Change podcast. If any of you have listened to previous seasons of this podcast, you'll know that I was one of the hosts in season one and two. So it's great to be back with you for this special episode. I'm going to be talking to current podcast host and senior manager at the Bertha Center, Dombini Marengane. One of my passions is using the lens of systems change to understand how so many problems facing the world today are interconnected. And the solutions to these problems need to be as interconnected if they are going to be long-lasting and affect any kind of systemic change today domini and i will be unpacking how adopting a systems change lens has impacted her thinking and work since joining the bertha center in 2020. according to an article published by stony brook university in 1973 design theorists Horst rittle and malvin Weber. Introduce the term wicked problem in order to draw attention to the complexities and challenges of addressing planning and social policy problems. An article published by the Harvard Business Review outlines some common characteristics of a wicked problem. Some of these characteristics include the fact that the problem has many stakeholders with different agendas, values, and priorities. The issue's roots are complex and tangled, and there does not seem to appear a right answer to the problem. Adopting a systems thinking lens is a way of viewing these wicked problems and helps us find solutions that are multi-layered and take all these dynamics into consideration. If you've been following this series, you'll know that we featured conversations with change makers from South Africa and further afield. Dombini has hosted these conversations and it's exciting to have her on the other side of the mic today, talking to us as a change maker in her own right. Ndombini is an author and urban specialist who has worked with the World Bank and was the project coordinator and researcher at the African Center for Cities at UCT before joining the Bertha Center. Ndombini has a background in public health and international development, as well as a master's degree in international affairs and development from Clark Atlanta University and is currently completing her doctoral studies in geography at UCT. Thank you so much for joining me, Dombini, on this episode, albeit on the other side of the mic for today. Uh, I I know that you're not feeling 100% well today, but thank you for for making the time. I'm just really looking forward to, to having this conversation and digging deeper into who Dombini is and your perspective on systems thinking and systems change. Thank you, Kenzie. Domini, I first met you when you joined the Bertha Center, and I think what always fascinated me, apart from just who you are as a person, is just sort of you holding, doing your PhD work, but also being deeply involved in each of our projects, you know, across the different portfolios at Bertha. I think what I'm really interested in is what drew you to the work of the Bertha Center, and particularly how systems thinking and systems change has influenced how you view the world and and the kinds of big changes
1: that the Bertha Center is trying to engage in and make? It's funny because I think that without realizing it, I've always approached things from a systems-based perspective. Before coming to the Bertha Center, I was with the African Center for Cities, also at UCT and the World Bank, prior to that as an urban development consultant. And one thing made sort of my my system's journey, if I can put it like that, most explicit was my transition from being a public health person to being an urban person. And I was introduced to that during my time at the World Bank, where I was asked to look at the way that HIV and AIDS prevention was tackled in an urban space, in an urban system. And it's been really interesting because It's just kind of been confirmation of what I've inherently known, which is that things are interrelated. They're interrelated in messy ways. um, And that you can't always quite predict that an input will have the desired effect. There's always unintended consequences. And you kind of got to look at things quite holistically to both understand a problem and to develop solutions. And I think from my time at the bank, I really benefited from having the mentorship of a person who was incredibly entrepreneurial. His name is Dave DeGroote. He's an urban sociologist. He always looked at a problem and said, what hasn't been thought of before and how can we try and flip this on its head? So I think that having that seed sort of planted during that working relationship just kept the kept the entrepreneurial bug going for me. And when I got the opportunity to come and work at the Bertha Center, I thought, this is great. This is a place where people actually encourage wild thinking and dreaming up things and not limiting ourselves just because it hasn't been done before, but purposely thinking of how do we bring these great ideas to life? And Domini, I think what's really fascinating about what you were saying
0: is just the creative ways that it can, that it can be applied to the ways that we work. And I guess... What I'm curious about is obviously coming from a policy background, how different, and, and, and I think we always assume that people that listen to this episode know or understand systems thinking. And, and I think a lot of the terminology sometimes makes it feel very, you know, this big concept, but in actual fact, it sometimes is quite simple to sort of explain it whilst using an example. So if I could ask you maybe to pull out from, you know, the work that Bertha Center is doing, what are some of the ways that maybe make systems thinking different, thinking of a particular project that the center is currently working on that you can reference?
1: So when I think about the work that the Bertha Center does, for me, it, it clearly represents a new frontier in trying to find a way to create a more socially just world, to create equity, because that's what's really needed, not a false sense of equality. and really pushing boundaries. And if I think most recently, we've had the opportunity to work with one of the major players in the banking sector whose team was interested in trying to reformulate how they express themselves to their clients and their partners and saying that actually sustainability is a core value and we care about the future of this country. We care about the future of this planet. Um, And it's not just about uh, business as usual for us. And I think what was really interesting (laughs) is that it was so hard for them to kind of take the first step, as it were. They were saying the right things. But then when you said, OK, well, we'll give us a concrete example of how you might implement this, it kind of just went back to default. Really hard to think past, you know, getting in the right number of deals, getting contracts, getting tenders, um, selling its financial products. Because if you consider a world in which there is deep inequality, selling a banking product to someone who doesn't have a job doesn't make sense, right? So you can't make this person your customer until you take care of their immediate material, social, and physical needs. And taking that leap seems very hard for South African corporates. We've learned about some really interesting models happening in other parts of the world Where corporates are investing in communities, but not in the typically South African way, which would be to maybe have a bursary scheme, have some uh, sporting activity or infrastructure kind of just plonked and not maintained, just left in the community and said, look, we built a stadium. Look, we built a pitch. Look, we put up a clinic. But really investing in a long-term relationship with the community in need and being able to take on critical feedback about how what they are doing is and isn't working in affecting the kind of social change and social impact that's needed. So I think that when we look at the birth Center and what we're doing, we are in a really amazing position to be partners to these players in, in a, a great range of industries from finance to IT to mining and to hold their hands and to help them think through in their context, how could systems thinking apply? And how could they really do things quite differently in a way that while achieving some kind of financial reward has a much more important impact of achieving collective change. Sure. Domini, you you've said a lot there, and and I think there's a couple of
0: threads that I want to pull on, but I think ultimately when I think about what you've just shared with us, is really talking about the mental models that support systems change. So how do we think about our society? How do we think about justice? How do we think about equity? Um, and, and, and how do we nudge our society to move towards a space where we're actually thinking about everybody's well-being um, rather than just pushing maybe one particular agenda? In the South African context, we've just come from a national shutdown um, a couple of days ago, really a political party calling for real social change and addressing, you know, systemic inequalities in our our country. So we know that South Africa is, you know, sitting in a particularly unique context where we have this confluence of really, very real structural challenges around unemployment, um, lack of access to, to healthcare, care, education. And this isn't unique to, to the South African context, obviously. So when I think about the work of, of the Bertha Center and even your background, it really sits at this nexus of civil society, you know, business, corporates, um, but also, you know, thinking about government as well. And I think you have this unique perspective of having worked across or having had a foot in all three of these different spaces. And just reflecting on what you were saying now around really holding the hands of corporates in the example that you were giving, I'm curious around what is then that one thing um, that could allow those actors who are wanting to engage in systems change to do it. You know, how do we get people to shift those mental models? Because I think you could talk to, you know, you know, corporates and they have their own challenges. You could talk to government and they'll tell you about bureaucracy and, and how slow moving and big government is. And then we have civil society, which sometimes acts in silos and isn't acting in interdependent ways. But I'm wondering for those who are listening to this episode, who are like, don't be me saying all the things that we absolutely should be doing, but from your perspective, having worked with all these different players and stakeholders. If you could just maybe think of one example or one piece that could really start moving the system or players in the system towards engaging systems thinking and systems change frameworks.
1: I'm not a fan of silver bullet answers. So I'll (laughs) say that first of all, because I think that's kind of of how how we've gotten to where we are. People think that, oh, if we just do this one thing, everything will fall into place and it doesn't work like that. But if I had to choose one area where I'd like to see where I'd like to see a shift that I think could lead to a more holistic conversation about how do we actually tackle these wicked problems that we have in this country? I would say being open to criticism, being open to the fact that just because what you're doing works for you doesn't mean it works, right? So just because I have a business where I'm able to, let's go with the mining example. I'm extracting minerals, I'm creating jobs, and I'm selling this this, uh, commodity on the world market, which is creating profits for the shareholders and and for the company leadership. That's working for a certain amount of people, but it's not working for everybody else, right? It's not working for the the migrant worker who comes to, to sell his labor or her labor at the mine and has to live in subhuman conditions because the pay is so little that they, they just try and cut every corner so that they can send as much money home as possible. It's not working for the people who are originally from that community who are watching their land, which maybe they used for grazing or for farming, seeing it completely eroded and destroyed for the purposes of mining and which of which they see no direct benefit. So my one thing would be to be open that what's working for you doesn't work for everyone. And to your earlier point, we are completely and totally interdependent. And I think there's a lot of, in the private sector world, there's a lot of individualism, if I can put it like that. And that kind of thinking where I only care about what this does for me, I only care about my benefit. I only care about my, my reward, and I don't care or think about or prioritize or even acknowledge the impact that my pursuit of my reward has on other people. That's, that's really the nub of the problem for me. And if you look at, you asked me about um, government and civil society. I mean, having worked with government, <laughs> I've been one of those wonderful consultants who's come with that silver bullet and said, if you just do this, it's going to like change everything. And while it's a great idea on paper, what the plans don't take into account is the political gymnastics that have to happen in order for people in leadership to buy into a new idea. What's not taken into account is the kind of importance that There is in having a a very powerful political champion with influence and access to resources to actually implement this great idea as a standalone, whether or not an international development agency is there. Because I think people might be surprised, or maybe not, to know that when a, a donor, an international donor comes with a project to a local authority or to a provincial government or even national government, at least in South Africa, and I think rightly so, there's a lot of skepticism. And there's a lot of, what, is, what are you really trying to achieve here? Questions. And as people rightly interrogate the motives of these supply-side solutions and the people who present them, I think there also has to be, should the idea be proven to be valid and have purchased and be you know, the right solution at the right time for the right context, there have to be people... In local institutions who are willing to put their necks on the line. And that doesn't always happen. So, really, for me, systems thinking is just understanding that you don't do anything solo. Even if you think you're doing it solo, you're not. You're impacting someone else positively or negatively. You may be reproducing inequality without even realizing it because your eyes are so tightly fixed on your reward. And that's being open to criticism and being open to thinking about new ways of imagining um, a best case scenario for a corporate or for a local authority or for civil society. I think that's that's the direction I'd love to see new adapters of, of systems thinking and system change. That's the direction I'd like to see them go in as a first step.
0: I mean, Domini, I think you're hitting the nail on the head here because this is one of the things that, that we talk about. I mean, and even when I was at Bertha, is this idea of stepping away from the hero perspective of really thinking that you know it all, right? And really centering the voices of others and really creating this dynamic narrative around what it takes to, to create systems change. So, so I think it's it's really fascinating that, that you're bringing that back into this conversation. And I was actually reflecting on the fact that during the pandemic, it seemed as though there was this window of opportunity where people were more malleable and open to listening to others. And and we saw so much social innovation from government, from corporates, from civil society. Um, And I think some of the things that I think about nowadays is how do we ensure that the pendulum doesn 't swing back and, and and I think for me that's like a really good segue to to maybe doing a bit of a deeper dive into into some of the work that you've done and and maybe just my interest in wanting to understand what's shifted and, and changed for you and and a place where I wanted to start that conversation is looking at the study that that you were part of and involved with. Um, in 2008 with the World Bank, uh, the study was looking at the search for land and housing in, in the new South Africa, the case for Itemba Leto. I think it'll be really interesting just to get a sense of what was some of the scope of that work. But really, for me, is really thinking about now that you've been working at birth and so deeply immersed in the systems thinking world, what shift what shifted and changed for you that maybe you were really sure about in 2008 when that case study was published and, and maybe where you sit now reflecting back?
1: Okay, I can tell you immediately what I was so sure of and I want to tell you before I forget. And that is that, so the, the crux of the Atembaletu problem was that you had a community which were farm workers who had been uh, living on a, on a piece of land adjacent to where they were working. And then the relationship with the, with the landowner changed. And whereas previously they, the, the community had thought, oh, we're going to be given this land and we can put together our own community the way that we want to. And they were told, no, you can't do that. You have to, you have to move. We can't have an African village here. And Etembaletu, for those who don't know, is, it's in Mulder's and in Gauteng. Um, so very much on the, the, the urban edge. And so what the community did was over time, they saved money and then they went and looked for other plots in size and and dimension that would meet their needs for creating a sustainable community. And almost every time they were able to get enough money together or identify a site, they were frustrated. They were frustrated by nimbyism. They were frustrated by racist, (laughs) just blatantly racist neighbors who said we're not going to have a bunch of black people living next to us like this this is not going to happen and also they were they were trying to follow rules um, which were created in a different time you said um, it's about finding home in the new South Africa the new South Africa is a place where the group areas act doesn't doesn't hold purchase anymore people are not required to live in certain locations according to their according to their racial classification and the vestiges of that kind of thinking was still very much alive in the area where this community was trying to establish itself, and I think for me, what we realized in doing this project is that because you can't legislate people's attitudes, right? You can't, we can't, you can't force the the racist um, landowners around the plot that the that the community had found to accept them. You can't force them to to dial back that racism and allow people to pursue their own livelihoods. What we could do was try and find out what are the mechanisms available from the state to help a community like this find and access land. And what we ended up finding was that there were so many institutions involved. So it's in Mojale City, this particular part of Mulder's Drift. And so we helped we helped the community talk to the city. We helped them talk to the um, Department of Environment in Gauteng. And we helped them talk to Land Affairs, saying if, if a community has its own funds and can afford to develop a piece of land, how can they go about accessing land in areas where they previously could not settle? And it ended up being a very complicated, it ended up being a very complicated almost like matrix of which department was responsible for which regulation. And so if you'd asked me at the beginning of that, I would have just said, oh, we just need to identify the right government department and then this will be sorted out, (laughs) right? Yeah. Not realizing (laughs) that there's like, you know, four or five different departments which don't talk to each other ever that were in the critical path for this community to access Um, land for housing so even if they were able to kind of find a way around the social barriers of having racist neighbors and still finding a piece of land that met their social and economic goals there were other barriers in the in the way placed there by the state unknowingly Um, and what I learned from that is that There was no one silver bullet. So it wasn't just about, oh, if we just talk to the mayor of Mokhali City, it'll be fine. Or, oh, if we just talk to the DG of land affairs, it'll be fine. It clearly wasn't fine. And what I also learned, and I think it surprised me, was about the the dynamism and the agency of the community itself. They didn't allow themselves, no matter how frustrated they were, no matter how disappointed they were, to give up on their dream. So, and and you must understand before we actually engage with them from the World Bank side, and this was purely a research project for us, they had already been looking for land for 10 years. We We were not their first port of call. They'd been already trying to do this for quite some time. And each time they took another step across a hurdle that was put in their path. Oh, you don't have an environmental impact assessment. Done. They found someone to go and do it. Oh, but it's not the right standard. Oh, it doesn't apply to the right regulations. Oh, um, you know, you want you want to do small scale agriculture. Well, that's a different EIA that you have to do. You can't do that one. So you have you still haven't complied with the minimum standards. And just roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. And they kept going. And they set up income generating projects. And they set up a early childhood development center there. And they had a soup kitchen. And this community, although primarily constituted of these former farm workers, grew over time. Not just in terms of, you know, population growth, but also migration. New people came to the area and said, oh, this looks like this could be okay. These people seem um, like a nice community. And the place where they were located, I have to say that, was so well chosen. Because it was easy to get to Ekuruleni. It was easy to get... To and it was easy to get to Joburg from this. A very rational and well thought through decision to try and locate themselves in that area. Sure.
0: Domini, you've said a lot. I feel like every time we ask you a question, you you unlock (laughs) multiple other. (laughs) No, no, but this is perfect because I think it's also illustrative of exactly what systems change and systems thinking is, is that as you think you've arrived at one particular point, and then there's there's actually more. But I don't want to lose the threads of what you've said because I think there's five things for me that stood out in just your your reflections right now is just the complexity of working with government. Um something about humility that actually reminds me of something that Ella Skipis, who's one of um, the facilitators on the systems change and social impact course that the Bertha Center um, hosts annually, is, is really this idea of, of not coming with our assumptions about what it means to work with marginalized groups and really being humble in, in that. And I think a lot of what you're saying is, is embedded in that. Um, This idea of, of really acknowledging the past. So, you know, apartheid structural inequality, what that means for, for spatial segregation in South Africa today. Um, I also loved your, your bit just around agency of people and sometimes how we think people don't have agency and, and how they organize is clear examples of that, right? Um, but I think what, what the thread that I do want to pull on is, is, I think, something that's really critical, especially as we think about urbanization. Not just, you know, in South Africa, but on the rest of the continent, knowing that we keep talking about this population dividend for Africa and that a big part of that is going to leverage on people moving to urban areas is this idea of working at the local and what that looks like to have localized economic opportunities so that I'm not traveling four or five hours, if not more, each day to access job opportunities, education, healthcare. care. Domini, as we're also just talking about local government and governance at the local level, I think one of the pieces that we have to talk about in an African context is what that looks like when it exists alongside traditional authorities. How does systems thinking fit in there?
1: I think this is a great, example of systems thinking because many of our cities hold the dual identity as it were so it's the colonial city that was established whenever in the past but even before that there were people living in this area they were people who were settled there maybe not in great numbers enough to qualify as a city but as a town as a trading center and people had ways of organizing and governing themselves. And one of one of those mechanisms was traditional authorities. And depending on where you are on the continent, colonialism's interaction with traditional authorities took one of two broad typologies. One is that traditional authorities were kind of downgraded from chiefs or kings to paramount chiefs and told, well, you'll have responsibility for native affairs and Uh, The colonial administration will have responsibility for everything else, sort of kind of trying to cut their sphere of influence and really marginalize them. And in other examples, chiefs were created to be a buffer between the colonial regime and the general populace. But I think what's important is that here we are in 2023 and traditional authorities continue to thrive in areas which are urban, peri-urban and rural and one of the things I think that's been missing in our conversations about the way that cities are, are developing on the continent, um, which is at the fastest rate that it ever has previously, is that we're not paying attention to this very important feature of the African urban landscape. I'll give you an example of the city I'm doing research on, which is Mbabani in, in Eswatini. When people migrate from rural areas to urban areas, the first thing they look for is shelter. How do they find that shelter? Do they go to the council and say, oh, where do you have some publicly available and I can just put up something quick while I seek employment or educational opportunities? No, they go to the chief. They ask for permission to have a stand to be able to set up a household, a, a urban household, which is different from their rural household, which they maintain. And they do so by demonstrating allegiance or pay tribute to this urban chief. So they observe all the traditional customs. And so what you end up finding is that in a place like Eswatini, chiefs have more say over the growth and trajectory of Swazi cities than local authorities do. Local authorities are using plans. Um, Some of the master plans done in the 1970s, 1980s haven't been updated. Meanwhile, the cities are mushrooming. Um, as people come looking for educational, social, and economic opportunities. And without a doubt, the institution that new migrants interact with without fail is traditional authorities. And our current understanding of both governance and public authority doesn't take enough notice of this. There have been really some amazing pieces of work done by our colleagues in West Africa who talk about. The attempts by urban local authorities to try and deliver infrastructure without the consultation of the chiefs, and when they come and tell the community, "Okay, you need to move off of this land because we we, we need to put in um, we need to put in bulk services," people don't say, "Oh, sure, let's move." The first thing they do is they call a meeting with their chief and say, "Do you give permission for this? Is this okay? Is this accepted? Does it have your blessing?" And so I think this blind spot which is only blind to people who are 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 focused on public administration systems, is something that we really have to pay attention to because it's not going anywhere. These chiefs were here before the colonial cities and they'll be here after. And they are still here and they influence um, how land is distributed, how access to water is granted, how boundaries of the cities grow, which direction, how fast. And I think it's a really under... Under um, studied part of the African urban story. You ask me how does it fit into systems thinking? It's understanding that these chiefs don't just hold custodianship of the land. They are responsible for the well-being of the community. They are responsible for making sure that if someone passes away and that family has children, that those children are taken care of. They're not left to fend for themselves. They're either, they make contact with the rural family. And if there's not a rural family, then they find the, an urban foster family for those children to be taken care of. So it's about looking at the traditional responsibilities, you could almost say, of these chiefs and understanding that just because they don't have a seat in a council or a seat in a regional authority, that they still matter. And they matter quite a bit. It's 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 quite it's fascinating. All the, the 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 location and and importance of chiefs really depends on where we're looking at what we're talking about on this continent, and so that really fascinates me because you know we're a continent of fifty four countries, and there are at least fifty four different ways to approach this question.
0: mean we didn't even get through half the other questions that that I had for you. I mean, you know. You're such a powerhouse. You're a published author. You're researching your PhD. Thank you for taking the time for joining us. Thank you, kenzi It's been fun. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ndombini as much as I did. I was struck by how adopting a systems change lens has enriched the thinking and work Ndombini is involved in. In fact, that's something that makes the Bertha Center so dynamic a team of people from a myriad of diverse backgrounds, and yet all focused on using their unique perspectives to contribute to creating sustainable and equitable systemic change. If you're interested in finding out more and engaging with the Bertha Center team, please sign up for the monthly newsletter. You'll see the link in the show notes. Adopting a systems lens certainly gives us more of a grid when it comes to tackling some of South Africa's most wicked problems. There is a saying in Isuzulu that comes to mind, which loosely translated means a person is a person because of or through other people. As individuals, we are part of a bigger whole, and the same applies to systems. No system stands alone. They are all a piece of the main, and working towards more sustainable, systemic change needs to be approached in this way. Otherwise, we continue to spend our energy on merely medicating the symptoms and not dealing with the root issues. And that brings us to the end of another episode thank you for tuning in to season three of the just for a change podcast powered by the bertha center for social innovation and entrepreneurship with me your guest host if you're interested in hearing more conversations with change makers then make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes if you've enjoyed this content i'd also like to invite you to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and feel free to share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. Let's stay inspired and keep changing the way we're changing the world.